Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Every April, when we plan these programs for the following year, we like to project likely hot-button issues of U.S. foreign policy for the first quarter of the following year, which means we're looking into a nine-month crystal ball. With the close relationship that Dallas has with our hemisphere neighbors to the south, we try to have a program every couple of years devoted to that area. You may remember that in January 2006, we had Brian Littell discussing Cuba and the Castros. At that time, Fidel had fallen ill and there was speculation that he might step down. For this season, we selected Hugo Chavez and his efforts to turn the nations of the hemisphere against the U.S., and we were lucky to get the country's top scholar on this subject, the top scholar, Dr. Michael Shifter. But look what happened a couple of weeks ago. Fidel Castro announced his resignation. And then, this last couple of days, <laughs> Colombia has invaded Bolivia, or a small invasion. So, our, uh, so there, are three, there, there are three separate topics. I, I called Michael when, when, when Fidel announced, I said, could you try to work this into your, your, your talk? <laughs> and that, and that, he says, sure, and then, then here we are here. So I'm talking on the airport on the way here today. He, his plane, he couldn't come in last night, they canceled it. But from the airport, I said, can you, can you put Columbia in there too? He said, yeah, he said, I'll work it in. But he's a, <laughs> he, he, is, he is the expert on the, of the whole region of, South, of Central and South America. He's vice president of policy at the Inter-American Dialogue, a Washington-based <coughs> forum on Western Hemisphere Affairs and adjunct professor of Latin American politics at Georgetown University. His recent articles have appeared in major U.S. and Latin American publications, such as the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Harvard International Review, and others. He is co-editor with Jorge Dominguez of Constructing Democratic Governance in Latin America, which is published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Since 1996, he has frequently testified before Congress about U.S. policy toward Latin America. We could not have found a more qualified person anywhere. Together, let us welcome Dr. Michael Shifter. Thank you very much, uh, Mel. That was a very kind, generous uh, introduction. Uh, and I want to thank you for the invitation uh, to be here, and thank you, uh, the world Affairs Council and the American Jewish Committee. Um, it, it's a great pleasure to be uh, with you today. Um, I uh, would like to leave more time for the Q&A. I was telling Mel that since I work for an organization uh, called the Inter-American Dialogue, uh, if I go on too long, then um, you might call me what the Venezuelan ambassador in Washington calls my organization, which is the Inter-American Monologue. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to get that reputation. So I'd rather have more of a dialogue and hear what's on your minds uh, today. Um, yesterday when uh, 
uh, when I was going to the airport, uh, attempting to come out here unsuccessfully, I, uh, I saw the uh, cover of the Washington Times, a newspaper in, in Washington, and uh, the title off on the front page was South America on the Brink of War. Uh, and there was a picture of Venezuelan, Ugo, uh, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez on the front page. Um, it was very odd uh, because uh, Chavez, uh, what had happened is Chavez had reacted very angrily and very vigorously to a military raid uh, carried out by Colombia uh, into Ecuadorian uh, territory in southern Colombia. Um, not Venezuelan territory, Ecuadorian territory, uh, to uh, kill a major Colombian guerrilla leader of the FARC, which is really the most important remaining insurgency in the Western Hemisphere. Um, in Chavez's speech, which I saw on television, um, he made a lot of references, as he always does, to the imperio, the empire, the United States. He was convinced, um, I believe very strongly, that this raid carried out by Colombia and the uncovering of intelligence material uh, from a computer hard drive, uh, which has information that associates the FARC with Hugo Chavez, uh, was really um, carried out responsible by the United States, that the United States was really directed all of this. Uh, and that, I think, accounts for the anger and the vigor of his reaction of sending tanks to the border of Colombia, to recalling his ambassador from Colombia and expelling the Colombian ambassador uh, from Venezuela back to Colombia. Um, the United States is never far from the mind of Hugo Chavez. And whatever Colombia does, or whatever the elites in Venezuela do, uh, Chavez sees them as the United as being instruments of the real power, which he regards as the United States. Chavez said <coughs> in his in his uh, speech that if you that if Colombia decides, is tempted to go across Venezuelan territory, not Ecuadorian territory, this would mean a war uh, in South uh, America. Um, again, I think this incident is useful because it illustrates precisely what the premise of this talk is, uh, that Chavez is on a mission and he is intent on defying and challenging U.S. power. And it's also a test of the question that's posed in the title of this talk, which is that will he be able to succeed in getting support and building a block or an alliance uh, on behalf of his position? Chavez, I think, we go back to basics, I think. What is, who is Chavez? What does he want? He's about power. Uh, I think the analogy with Fidel Castro is not very helpful. Fidel Castro is a revolutionary who had a clear idea of what he wanted, and he pursued it and he carried out. He carried it out. 
Chavez is more of a traditional strongman, caudillo, as we say uh, in Spanish. Uh, in Latin America, this has a long history, and in Venezuela, it has a long history. There have been previous strongmen that have emerged at different points in Venezuelan history, and Chavez is another. He's emerged in this, in this context, and what gives him special meaning and what means that we should take him seriously is the fact that he has a lot of money. Uh, when he came into power in 1999, uh, oil was $8 or $9 a barrel. Uh, I don't have to tell uh, this group uh, that there's been a slight change in the last couple of years. Um, so he has benefited enormously from a very favorable energy market and he uses that windfall, those revenues, in the service of his political agenda and his political project. He has huge ambitions and huge appetites. Venezuela is a country with 27 million people, but from the beginning that has always been too small a stage for Chavez. He needs a bigger stage, and not only Latin America, following his hero, who is Simon Bolivar, the independence, a hero of, the, of, uh, of, of South America, 19th century figure, who talked about Latin American integration, Latin American solidarity. He not only is following uh, that vision, but he also sees himself as a global player. It's not only Venezuela is too small, Latin America is too small. And he has alliances, with Ahmadinejad of Iran. He's had a close relationship with Putin, with the head of Belarus, and other, uh, and, and, and other uh, countries. So he sees himself not just as a Latin American leader, but as a global leader. And again, what has made all this possible is oil. Chavez emerged in a country, Venezuela, and I think this is important to just have the background, that had suffered the most dramatic decline of any Latin American country in the 1980s and the 1990s. It's a country that lost 40% of its national income. It's a country that had about 75% living in poverty, despite these tremendous oil reserves. Bad management, widespread corruption, created a lot of disenchantment among the Venezuelan people. They were looking for an alternative, and in 1998, Hugo Chavez was elected uh, overwhelmingly by the Venezuelan people to be president uh, of Venezuela. Not only does he have a lot of oil, but he also has a lot of charisma, a word we hear about today um, in, in the context <laughs> of our own election. Um, and unlike his predecessors, he projected a concern for the poor. And he sounded the theme of social justice, of reducing the inequalities. Latin America, as many of you know, is the world champion in income inequality. It has the highest, the greatest gap between the rich and the poor of any region, including Africa, uh, in the world. And Chavez really pounded away uh, at that theme, which I think has enormous appeal for a lot of people in Venezuela which a country that had deteriorated as well as throughout uh, the region. So he really put his finger, and for this I think he deserves credit, 
on a legitimate grievance that was felt by a lot of people who were left out of the political and economic life of the country. He also, let us not forget, that came, he has been in power now over nine years at a time when the United States um, government is not very popular in Latin America and is not very trusted in Latin America. And Chavez, being an astute politician, has taken advantage of that mistrust, lack of credibility, uh, unpopularity, to also advance his agenda and appeal to the, many of those in the region and in Venezuela who are um, opposed to the U.S. government and its policies. But all that said, his, the problem is that his style from the outset, his political style, has been confrontational, has been divisive, he has shown autocratic and authoritarian tendencies. I resist in using the word dictator because he has been elected repeatedly by the Venezuelan people. It's not surprising uh, if you were head of a government and the, and the oil was $100 a barrel and you were able to spend it for your own political agenda, uh, you'd probably be pretty popular as well. It's hard not to be. And the opposition has been very weak and very fractured. People vote, they look for, okay, if not Chavez, who else is there? And there really hasn't been a very attractive uh, alternative. So he is autocratic, he's authoritarian, he's concentrated power uh, in his own hands, controls all the relevant institutions, the courts, the Congress, the Electoral Council, the Armed Forces, the oil company. He's in very, very strong um, position. Um, so he has, and with, the, with that kind of model or with that kind of governance, um, he has not been able to provide answers and solutions to these problems. So he's been successful in putting his finger on what the problem is. But in this day and age, um, in a very complex global economy, in a very complex society, it's very difficult to actually solve problems if you're confrontational with all sectors of the uh, managerial and, and, and more middle class sectors of the country, and if you make all the decisions, all the key decisions yourself. And I think this is the problem uh, that Chavez uh, has. He is anti-institutional. Um, he is the person who embodies the will of the Venezuelan people. He is the savior. There is a messianic streak that he reflects. And any institution that comes between him and the people he rejects. Now, one essential condition to be able to build this block, this coalition, this alliance against the United States, which I think is one of his objectives, as we see time and again, is to be strong at home. And the situation changed um, on December 2nd when Chavez lost for the first time at the polls in nine years. What was at stake was a referendum um, that would enable him to run for office indefinitely. There'd be no 
limits to how often he could run. And the Venezuelan people rejected that. His project clearly was to be president for life. If I represent the will of the people, if I'm the only one that could really help Venezuela, then I want to be here forever. And he tried to do that through a referendum, confident that he would win, I'm sure, but he didn't. He lost marginally, but he lost. And I think this was a major setback, a major blow to his ego, to his self-confidence, and to his own sense of his understanding of his country, which he just assumed was going along with him. The problem is that the Venezuelan people, even his own supporters, and even those who appreciate the loyalty and, and the concern that he has to them, were not prepared to go along with a project in which he would be president for life, what he calls 20, socialism of the 21st century. That's his term for it. One thing is for the state to carry out social welfare programs to uh, have subsidized food, have literacy programs, health care programs to poor communities that have not had access to those programs. It's hard to argue with that if you don't have access to health care and he gives it to you. That's different than saying, I want to be president for life. I don't want anybody to succeed me. Uh, and, and I'm going to have all the power in my hands. There was a difficult decision for many Venezuelans who have, been, who have gone along with him up until that point and said, up, we won't go with you beyond this. We won't embrace this model that you're trying to impose. And so, as a result, he has been weakened at home. In addition, all of the problems are increasing. This, ironically, at a time when oil is at record prices. Inflation is the highest in Latin America, 22%, 23%, three times the regional average. Because of price controls, there are scarcity of basic goods. You could go and have all the access you want to whiskey, which is imported. There's a consumer boom, but you can't find milk in Venezuela today. So if you're, for, precisely for his constituency, the people that are his base, uh, he is not performing well. Crime, if you look at even government statistics, their own statistics, crime and insecurity are off the charts, have tripled since he's come into office. The drug trade goes increasingly through Venezuela. Uh, I've talked to ambassadors in Washington from Great Britain and other uh, countries in Europe that serve in Venezuela and they say that their estimate is that 50% or so of the cocaine that reaches Europe goes through Venezuela. Um, corruption uh, is rampant. We don't know, it's always hard to measure corruption and know about the extent of corruption. Uh, but we know when there's so much money involved and we know when there's no accountability mechanism and no constraint on executive power, um, it's not, shouldn't be shocking to anybody that there's a high level of corruption. So these soft spots in Venezuela have been emerging and also contributed to the decision of the Venezuelan people on, uh, the sec on December 2nd. The polling shows today that Chavez's support is in the 30s. One poll, I've saw, I saw three polls, latest polls before coming here. One was 38%, one was 36%, one was 33%.
And these are polls that had him a couple of months ago, the same polls, up to 55, 60% support. So it's a pretty dramatic drop. And I think it's important to understand what's happening in the context of the incident that I described earlier, his declining domestic support uh, at, at home. When Chavez goes to a regional meeting today, in contrast to before December 2nd, the other leaders of Latin America know that he doesn't, that he has received a strong message from the Venezuelan people and has suffered a setback. As all of you know, when you go to a meeting and you have all, you have, you represent the people who back you enthusiastically, it's different than when you go to a meeting and now there are some doubts that are being raised about you. So he is in a somewhat weakened position despite the money that he has uh, to offer and despite the fact that his rhetoric still resonates in some quarters. The United States is still not very popular. Social justice is still a big issue. And he is uh, a very good communicator, a very good orator. So I would say most leaders in Latin America today indulge Chavez. He buys bonds in, Venice, in, in Argentina, buys bonds in Ecuador. He gives oil to discounted prices at the Caribbean. Um, through uh, an arrangement called Petro Caribe. And of course, he has a special relationship with Cuba that he's always had. It provides around 95,000 barrels of oil a day to Cuba. And in exchange, the Cuban government provides about 20,000, 25,000 uh, teachers and doctors who work in the barrios uh, of Venezuela. That's the arrangement that he has with Cuba. But clearly, there has been a very close uh, relationship, especially with Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. Uh, Castro is Chavez's mentor. From all accounts, they have spoken frequently in Chavez, and Castro has given uh, advice and guidance um, to Chavez in, a, in, in making his decisions. When one asks in Venezuela, who does Chavez listen to before making the decision, uh, the answer has been uh, Fidel Castro as being one of the prime people that he that he listens to. And also, the United States. He's the first Latin American leader since Eva Peron in 1949, um, who is actively seeking to build the constituency in the United States. Today, he gives discounted home heating oil <coughs> to 23 states in the United States, to low-income residents. And through CITCO, which is a subsidiary of the Venezuelan oil company, he certainly is very active uh, in this country and has made a very conscious decision to try to get support through the American people, through the poor especially. And if you go to a lot of poor communities, you'll see some expressions of support for Hugo Chavez. We never had that in Latin America. This is a new phenomena. He is different than other leaders. He also has undertaken these region-wide projects because he claims that if you go to the World Bank, the Organization of American States, which is meeting today in emergency session about this, uh, this grave situation uh, involving Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela, he says these are all dominated by the United States. They're all Cold War, post-Cold War, reflect that reality. We want to create organizations in which we, Latin Americans are in control, not the United States. So he has launched uh, alternative trade arrangements 
one's called Alba, that currently includes Bolivia, Nicaragua, uh, and, and Cuba. He's backed out of the Andean Pact uh, arrangement because two of the countries, Peru and Colombia, negotiated free trade deals with the United States. The Colombia deal has still not been approved by the Congress. The Peru deal was. But his argument is, if you're going to make a trade deal with the United States, I don't want to be part of this group. He backed out and formed his own group. He's launched something called the Banco del Sur, the Bank of the South, which is supposed to be an alternative to the World Bank, to the International Monetary Fund, to other multilateral financial institutions in which he is going to play a very, he has committed a lot of money and he wants to play a strong role in shaping. He's launched Telesur, which is the alternative to CNN, basically saying that CNN is all dominated by propaganda from the United States and we need a different uh, channel communication to give the perspective from Latin America. Now all these initiatives, it's too early to tell whether it had any success. I remain very skeptical about all of them uh, because all of them imply somehow some in an effort to build an institution. And Chavez, just as he's failed to in build institutions in Venezuela, I really doubt he's able to, to build institutions uh, throughout the region with other allies, with other governments, because he wants to make the decision. And when you have institutions, we have rules, and some people make the decisions, other people make the He is not somebody who has a great... Uh, has great respect for rules of the game. So I have serious doubts, despite the amount of money that he's, that he's put in, despite problems of the traditional multilateral institutions. Uh, they clearly have problems. They're facing uh, a lot of new challenges. But whether he's capable of really building an alternative that works well, uh, I have serious doubts. And there's no evidence so far that any of these are really doing uh, very well. Now, what's interesting is that there was a, you probably remember, a summit that took place in Chile at the end of November of last year, where the most famous memorable phrase from 2007 was said by King Juan Carlos of Spain. Remember that this was a summit, this was a summit where the United States was not present. It's called the Ibo-American Summit. It's the summit of all the Latin American countries, plus Spain and Portugal. The United States is not part of it. Uh, Cuba is part of it. There was the vice president of Cuba and the foreign minister of Cuba were there. It was held in Chile, which is a socialist, has a socialist government. The theme was social cohesion, social agenda, which is the theme that Chavez has been identified with. And yet, what happened? There was tremendous acrimony, tremendous discord, and Chavez was told by the king of Spain uh, to shut up because he kept going on and uh, insulted the former Prime Minister of Spain, Aznar. So even in a setting where the United, where you couldn't blame the United States because it wasn't near the place, um, there was no U.S. official there. Here you had a place where everybody says, boy, this guy is really getting, you know, uh, not very productive. This is not the kind of politics or the kind of style that we like. So there you see that he was rejected by governments that call themselves socialists. These are not governments, uh, conservative or right-wing governments. These are socialist governments. But there's a different kind. Uh, there's a more moderate, pragmatic. They want to deal with the United States. They want to get better terms. They want to, for their own uh, economies, like governments would want to do. But there isn't this kind of belligerence and the kind of confrontation that uh, has characterized 
Chavez. Um, Chavez has also called for an inter-American military alliance that has been rejected by all of the governments in the region, even the governments that are allied with him. Uh, Bolivia, Ecuador, Nicaragua have even rejected that. His call for the political status of the FARC, this guerrilla group in, 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 uh, in Colombia, was rejected several weeks ago. This is before the current crisis. was rejected by all the government leaders except for Daniel Ortega of Nicaragua. So he really has some hardline belligerent positions that, again, are not accepted by the other leaders. What do you do with him? He has money. He's there. He appeals to some of your people because of his rhetoric. Uh, it's very uncomfortable and very difficult for these governments to deal with. I also think he's going to have a hard time because of some internal changes within these countries. Venezuela, I already mentioned, he's going down in the polls. He's in trouble despite the, the price of oil. Clearly, if oil goes down, he's going to be in even more trouble. Uh, in countries like Venezuela, like uh, Bolivia and Ecuador, they are having ref they're having constitutional new constitutions that are being developed. That are being that are very contentious, where there's a lot of uh, conflict. It's going to be hard for those countries to be very strong and very united uh, to back him. Um, Colombia has never been more united. Uh, the irony is that Chavez has given a great gift to the Colombian president, who he regards as his adversary, because he has been so uh, insulting towards the Colombians um, that the that. The, all the country has unified around their president. Nationalism is very, very powerful in Latin America. And even people who don't like the president of Colombia, Oribe, have backed him because he's been attacked so much by Chavez. Let me say a word about Cuba, So I think it's very interesting. Cuba is, I think, uh, is more, uh, to say that it's in transition, I think may be an overstatement. There's get a lot of continuity in Cuba. Uh, Raul Castro, from all accounts, will, will continue uh, many of the policies and many of the uh, many of the, the ideas that have been characteristic of the Cuban uh, Revolution. But what's clear is that Raul Castro doesn't have the same relationship uh, to Chavez as Fidel Castro does. And the next generation of Cubans don't feel the same way about Hugo Chavez. And just like the Cubans don't want the United States to dictate what will happen in their country, they don't want Hugo Chavez to dictate what's going to happen in their country. And it's a major concern that they have this dependence on Chavez of about a $3 billion, sub, comes out to about a $3 billion a year subsidy because of the provision of oil. So what we already start, are starting to see in a very interesting way is Raul Castro, Fidel's brother, is actively pursuing other relationships and is also uh, giving more attention to economic reform and economic opening in Cuba, which I think we're going to see. And part of the reason why we're going to see it is to try to get away from a dependence on Chavez and Venezuela. Uh, Raul Castro has um, accepted a significant line of credit from Brazil. Uh, Brazil has also made uh, major oil discoveries off its coast, uh, and it's hoping to, Cuba is hoping to get an energy arrangement with Brazil um, that would to some extent uh, displace the strong dependence they've had on Venezuela. So there's a very interesting process going on of the Cubans, I think, in this next phase, 
with Fidel uh, somewhat out of the picture, even though he clearly is still uh, around. He's retired, but he's, he's still alive. Um, really, uh, the new next leadership in Cuba uh, not wanting to uh, be dependent on Chavez. Chavez wants to assume the mantle of the revolutionary left in Latin America. Um, he is basically a military guy who got lucky because he got a lot of money, and there's certain crassness and vulgarity to that, and he lacks the kind of romantic aura uh, that Fidel Castro has. So that's part of the reason why he tries to attach himself so much to Cuba, uh, but I don't think he's going to succeed uh, in the end. Um, Brazil, I think, is a critical player in future scenarios in the region. Um, Brazil is uh, a major regional power, also has a leftist government, and clearly uh, has some profound disagreements with uh, Chavez, with his political uh, style. They're also, uh, again, developing uh, alternative energy. They're already a major producer of ethanol, and they also they have uh, substantial oil reserves uh, off the coast. Finally, on internal developments, the Chavez will lose his ideal foil in January of 2009 uh, when there's a new administration uh, in Washington and President Bush has been a uh, tremendous gift uh, to Hugo Chavez. Uh, the question that's often asked is what will change when there's a new administration? Uh, was this just a matter of personality, this tension with the United States and Venezuela? Uh, personalities, I think, play a part. They make things a little more difficult or, or not. Uh, but I think there are real differences. Uh, and I think they go a lot deeper. And they're not going to be disappear uh, whether the next president is uh, Clinton, Obama, uh, McCain, whoever it is. Uh, there are real points of difference, uh, strain. One is uh, Chavez's relationship with Iran which is an issue that I think is going to continue to be important, not go away. And I think any next president of the United States is going to be very concerned about that. Uh, and there's no indication that Chavez is relaxing his relationship uh, with Iran. So he's in a difficult situation on these internal changes in all of these uh, countries. Uh, and there's a big difference between what he wants to do and what he's able to do. So one always has to take, listen to what he says. I think it does tell you where he wants to go. But whether he's able to get there uh, is a very uh, different question. Like Fidel Castro, and in this sense he is like Fidel Castro, he's tried to protect himself from vulnerable, to make himself not vulnerable from the United States if the United States tomorrow decides not to buy Venezuelan oil. Today, 60, over 60% 60 of the Venezuelan exports come to the United States. So he talks about developing markets to China which could happen in the long term, perhaps, but not in the short term. There are too many technical and economic obstacles to that. And also, he wants to protect himself from a possible military action by the United States. Uh, I believe that he's convinced that that is a, a serious option. I don't believe it is, but, he, but I believe he thinks it is. And that's why he's bought some 3 to $4 billion of arms from Russia to be prepared in the event of any kind of military action. So in that sense, like Fidel Castro, he wants to protect himself and not be vulnerable to the United States. Let me just um, conclude uh, with a few comments about the current conflict and bringing it back to that. Um, here again, uh, despite all of this impulsive 
reactions, angry reactions by the part of Travis. Uh, there is uh, the matter of reality. Uh, and the reality is that Venezuela, uh, despite his threats of going to war, Venezuela and Colombia uh, have over $5 billion of trade between the two of them. Uh, a disruption in that trade because of a military conflict would be very, very serious for both countries. Right now, and of course, if the trade is affected, the economy is affected, Chavez's power base is affected. And you go back to power. He doesn't want his power to be undermined. <laughs> so for him, it's important to keep that relationship. He can't say, I don't want to trade with Colombia tomorrow. I'll trade with somewhere else. These are neighbors. This is like you have Canada here, consul from Canada, Mexico. Their connections are profound between Colombia and Venezuela trade relationships, migratory relationships. So it's, it's, it sounds, well, we'll go to war. If the Colombians do this, we'll do that. You know, a lot of bravado and a lot of bluster. But at the end of the day, uh, it's very, very hard uh, to substitute that trade. Also, Colombia has twice the size of the armed forces of, the, of Venezuela, over double. About 250,000 in the Colombian armed forces, about 110,000 in Venezuela. Uh, Colombia is in a militarily superior position. So for all of this th these threats, uh, he may be reluctant to follow through uh, if he's in a weak position. So for that reason, I don't think uh, it's, uh, this is, this is going to happen. There's going to be an escalation uh, of this. Um, so I, uh, I think there are these kind of shock absorbers uh, because of these connections among countries which, which kind of cushion and prevent things from getting out of control. We'll see what emerges today from the OAS. I want to go back to Brazil as being a very, very important player in this. The United States can't do very much in this crisis. Obviously, it has no relationship with Venezuela and doesn't have a good relationship with Ecuador. Uh, it is seen as a strong backer of the Colombian government. Colombia has gotten more security aid uh, from the United States than any country outside the Middle East since 1999. So when Chavez sees, as I said at the beginning, when Chavez sees Colombia, he sees the United States behind it. The one country that is in a strong position, that is a strong power, is Brazil. In the eyes of the president of, of Colombia, of Ecuador, and of Venezuela, uh, the president Lula, who's of the left, has a lot of legitimacy, a lot of credibility, and I think it's going to be a test for the Lula government to see if they can broker some agreement and try to diffuse uh, these tensions. I'm pretty confident they will, but as we all know, uh, actions lead to reactions, um, and sometimes it's hard to know uh, exactly where they can end up. So there's always the potential, but I really seriously doubt uh, that that's going to happen. Let me just say that it's very risky to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, I try not. I, I, I try not to do that. Uh, but I think Venezuela is going. The next couple of years is going to be very turbulent. Um, I think uh, this is not because he's a terrible tyrant and dictator. It's because it simply doesn't work, uh, and the problems are going to get worse. And I think we're already already seeing the seeds of decay in Venezuela. How that plays out, at what pace, and what are the scenarios? Uh, it's very, very hard to know, but uh, I think that this project is, is, uh, is, is, is really coming to a very, very critical uh, point.
So thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. It's at wasn't the subject broad. I mean, this is, uh, you hardly know where to start. Thank you. You just covered in such a masterful way. Now we have uh, until 1.30 to have our, our question and answer. We have a tradition here that's very, very effective to afford mo uh, the most people possible to ask questions. We have three, we, we'll take three questions at a time. And we will, we will uh, adjourn formally at 1.30, but then he will stay here at the uh, podium and have an informal Q&A following that. So we'll take three questions. Given the importance of the, uh, the referendum in December and the power that, that uh, the power that Chavez has over the military, the courts, and the electoral process, uh, why didn't he uh, fix the results and declared victory? <laughs> That's right, Jim. Could you comment on the? <clears throat> Could you comment on the flight of capital and maybe the diaspora of the uh, upper middle class uh, in Venezuela? Um, Frank. It strikes me that the United States has really neglected Latin America and overlooked it uh, for many, many decades. And I was wondering, in light of what Hugo Chavez is doing, what advice would you give to the next president of the United States, whoever it is, uh, for dealing with Latin America and being more effective in developing goodwill for the United States there and in improving things? Thank you. Okay. okay. Thank you for those uh, good questions. Um, I, you know, there, there are a lot of why he accepted the results. There are a lot of rumors and speculation about why he did. One was that uh, that's, that's banded about, that he really lost by a, a larger margin, and that the, that the armed forces told him um, that uh, he, if he didn't accept, there would be a lot of violence, and there'd be violence that would really be a problem for them. Uh, many people also believe, and again, um, these are credible people, but I, I can't guarantee this is true, that actually Fidel Castro told him that he better accept the results. That, he, that was his advice, that if he fought this, um, that it would eventually come out and it would really be the, the end, and this was the best way for him to kind of handle it, to gain legitimacy, you know? He could say now that he's a Democrat, he accepted the results. All the, you know, if you, the, the spin machine, if you think the spin machine of the Democratic and Republican Party is good, <laughs> you should see the Venezuelan government. Uh, and that they really did learn from the Cubans. They're very good. They're very good. I mean, it, what, uh, right after it came out, I got 18 emails to me saying, you know, everybody says this guy's a dictator. Dictators don't accept, you know, defeat. So they really played that full. So there are a lot of uh, explanations, but most people think that the margin was greater than the one or two points that actually came out, that he would gain legitimacy. And after all, look, he didn't give up anything. He's in power until 2000, according to the current Constitution, he could be in power until 2013. We're in 2008. He's got a lot of time. Um, he's got a lot of money. Uh, it's not like the vote was to get him out of power. So he's got a lot of room. And um, I think that was, those were some of the factors that, that weighed. Uh, but people do say that Castro did call him up and say, listen, you better, 
you know, you better recognize this, and that's the best thing for you to stay. And he listened to that because he clearly was, uh, you know, was shaken by this. You could tell by the way he spoke that he didn't expect this 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 defeat. The diaspora is is, is very very significant. Uh, I gave a talk in Houston, uh, and half the audience were Venezuelan oil engineers uh, who had come to live in Houston. Um, you know, there you know people it, it, people made you know, have three options. They could either sort of oppose, fight the government, which some have done. Uh, they can either leave the country, which many have done, or they can accommodate. Um, and some have done that as well. So I think you can look at a lot of the sort of the, sort of the managerial uh, community in Venezuela, and they've all made different decisions. They, you know, everybody makes their own decision, but the diaspora uh, has been very, very significant. The capital flight is, you know, this high level of uncertainty, but also, you know, the reality is that this is a country because of the oil that has, there's a lot of money and a lot of people doing very well. And so if you make the assessment that you can do very well, but somehow not have high risk and you could do it in the short, short term, you know, uh, and this is why we see oil companies, you know, Exxon makes some decision, other oil companies make other decisions and, you know, they decide what they're going to do. Uh, and that's just the internal risk assessment of each country. But I think it's, it is significant. You're, the main point is I think, I think you know, if, if tomorrow something happens with Chavez and they decide to, to go back, and uh, they will have lost a lot of the real technical uh, sort of expertise. The oil company now is filled with a lot of people who are political loyalists, who are not known necessarily for their expertise and knowledge and more for their for their political loyalty to Chavez, which is why production has gone down and why they're why they're in trouble. Um, so I think that's a, that's a major problem. Uh, on the U.S. policy, uh, I've been critical uh, of uh, the administration, and I was critical of the Clinton. Remember, Chavez was there under the Clinton administration as well. This has been there since 1999. So uh, I was critical of the Clinton administration and the Bush administration for just being. This is sort of like a, a deer in the headlights phenomenon. You know, you don't, people kind of look and say, who is this guy? You know, they're not, nobody knows how to deal with this guy. And I think as a result, there's been a lot of incoherence and a lot of uh, inconsistency. Sometimes there's a lot of aggressive rhetoric against him, which of course plays right into his hands. He's, it's perfect for him. He loves that. And other times, there have been times when the U.S. has been very passive, where he does outrageous things. And the U.S. says, well, this is just a fever that's just going to pass. So let's not pay him too much attention. Well, you know, the fever has been around for a while. Sometimes fevers pass, and sometimes fevers get uh, worse, and uh, you got to deal with them. So I think the Bush, I think that both administrations have been faulty uh, on that basis. And I think, th th you know, my answer to the question is, you know, there's not a lot that could be done, uh, you know, uh, in terms of affecting developments within Venezuela, but a lot could be done in terms of the region about strengthening uh, allies and partnerships with the Brazils and the Chiles and the other countries. Uh, I think not, not supporting the trade deal with Colombia is a very bad. And this, of course, is directed more to the Democrats than the Republicans. But I just think you know, Colombia has been a major ally uh, there in this fight with Venezuela. Uh, the best Chavez would be delighted if this trade deal is rejected. Because he says, look, you know, the United States has been promoting free trade. The United States has been giving Colombia all this, this aid, and they're not even going to support a trade deal. If you can't trust the United States on this issue, Colombia, what can you trust the United States on?
So it feeds into his argument. So I think, you know, I mean, there are issues like immigration would make a big difference in Latin America if there were, if there were some sort of comprehensive reform that's very important, not only in Mexico and Central America, but on President Bush's last trip to Latin America and Uruguay, all the way, all the way in the South, this was the big issue that the President of Uruguay raised with President Bush. So any change in immigration would really create a lot of goodwill uh, in, in Latin America. So those are kinds of the things. And as the United States recovers and repairs the damage, uh, I think this, this experiment and this experience in Venezuela is going to collapse of its own weight. I just think the contradictions are so great. And again, these what I call the seeds of decay are, are very clear. And that would be the most intelligent way to deal with it. OK, uh, three more questions. Uh, far back there. Can you please comment on this statement um, made by President Oribe about um, Chavez being reported to the International Criminal Court in The Hague? For some time, the Chinese have been touring the world trying to sew up oil deals for their future energy needs, and they have dealt quite a bit with Chavez. I wonder if you could comment on the possibility that at some point in time, Chavez would, would redirect most, if not all, of Venezuelan oil production to Chinese contracts and no longer sell to the United States. Um, you speak about Venezuela imploding itself eventually. Can you talk about at what price to the Venezuelan people? And after the fact, how would the United States or the international community would assist in rebuilding? Great, great, great questions. Um, I'll take them in turn. On the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the first one, you know, this is, this is basically there's been information that's, you know, that's been uncovered, uh, which many people have argued in Colombia for a long time, but now they have sort of, a, they feel like I have a smoking gun, they feel like they have evidence uh, that there has been not only a certain sympathy and statements uh, of uh, support to the, to the Colombian guerrillas, but there actually is an alliance there. And so I think the Colombians want to take that to the international, you know, that, 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 that a head of state is supporting terrorism. And so they wouldn't do it, you know, again, the United States is seen as so much part of the Colombian alliance that I think the Colombians think would have a lot more credibility, legitimacy internationally uh, if they could bring it before the, the international court. So that's why I think that's why Uribe is doing it, and that's, he's pushing in that direction. Uh, on China, you know, all the experts tell me uh, that this is, you know, Venezuela has this heavy crude uh, that's very, very difficult. To re you have to have special refineries for it. All of them are here. Uh, if you look on a map, China's <laughs> not doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, I was in China in October for a couple of weeks and spoke to a lot of officials who work on Latin America, um, and they were very, uh, they really downplayed. Um, the possibility that the market could really shift. The Ch China seems more interested in other markets, uh, in Africa and other places for, for oil than, than Venezuela. They also, by the way, are not crazy about Chavez, uh, don't think he's a reliable partner. 
and they don't want to, for them, the most important thing is their relationship with the United States. And they know that Chavez, there's a, it's a very sensitive issue. And the last thing they want to do is risk any problem with the United States over Chavez. So they're very cautious about that. If you look at the, inf the data, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, it, the, it's gone up, uh, the, the, the purchase of, of oil, but nothing dramatic. And it's, again, the, the irony is that for all of this nine years of tension and problems with the United States, Venezuela buys a higher percentage from the United States than they did before. They're more dependent on the U.S. market than they were before Chavez came in. And so uh, I think it's happening, but not <laughs> at, at, at the way Chavez would like. And he doesn't have the govern, governing capacity or the technical expertise to really accelerate that shift. I have no doubt he'd like to do it, but I just think he's not, not capable of doing it. Uh, on your very good question about, about um, the implosion and what happens, I think this is a serious problem. I, I, I certainly don't want to, uh, uh, I mean, you, you have a, there, there are a lot of people who I respect a lot in the Venezuelan opposition um, who, thinks, who think the worst thing that could happen is that Chavez implodes tomorrow. Uh, because what do you have? Who's going to run the country? Uh, do you want, is the military going to come in? Uh, what would that do? Uh, is there any opposition? If you ask me who are the opposition figures in Venezuela, I can give you 10, 12 names, but they're not together. They're, they don't have a unified force. Um, so there's a real problem. And there are a lot of smart people that say, you know, this guy's on a downward trend. It's not reversible. Um, but um, it shouldn't happen tomorrow. It should happen gradually because the opposition, there needs to be time to prepare some alternative, um, some alternative political force, some set of policies. Um, so when that happens, there's somebody, there's, there are some people that could, that could take over. And I think, I find that a much more plausible thing. I do think you can have a, a worse scenario. And of course, all the Chavez supporters, whatever, if it's 35% or 40%, whatever it is, these are hardcore you know, the supporters, they're, they're uh, not going to trust another government. It's going to be very hard to reconcile uh, the country. So, um, you know, sh should the United States help? You know, yeah, I think that they should. I mean, obviously, the record in democracy building and nation building is not great. It's fundamentally going to be the task of, of, of Venezuelans. But I think the United States should be supportive and, and of, of, of future scenarios. But I, I do think the point of, of, of a sort of a collapse uh, tomorrow, um, uh, something happens to him. Uh, I'm not sure that you know that that's the alternative is going to be a lot more stable, at least in the short term, because uh, who's going to sort of be in the position to take over? And that's, that's an important thing to think about. Okay, three more questions. Right here. You you mentioned uh, Chavez's control of institutions. And you mentioned Telesumer. Uh, how much freedom of information exists in other forms of media? Radio, television, newspapers, internet. You mentioned the anti-American feeling in South America, but isn't that been the case for the last 50 years? I think I remember hearing that over the last 50 years that there was an anti-American feeling in South America. Over there. 
Uh, when I was in Venezuela in the early 90s, uh, there was a uh, distinct undercurrent, so this isn't a new phenomenon of anti-American sentiment. So apparently there were some preceding activities, probably post-Castro, to establishing this regional sort of um, victimization that some people, you know, uh, uh, you know, took to their own advantage. So um, if you could explain that so we could all understand, please. That's part of the same question, I think. Let's have one more question. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned, and we talked earlier about the potential implosion of, Venezuela, of Chavez, at least. Uh, if oil prices, which are now at extraordinarily high levels, and some of us would say bubble levels, were to fall to something like $50 a barrel, how much damage, obviously it would do a lot of damage to Venezuela and might it spread throughout South America? Okay, uh, again, good questions. I, I think, you know, Venezuela is not Cuba. And um, I think I want to stress that. I mean, this is not, um, you know, if you go to Venezuela, you can buy uh, papers uh, that are critical of the government. You can turn on the TV and, you know, see TV programs that are critical of the government. Uh, but the government does give some space. But, you know, very few people, first of all, very few people read the, TV, uh, read the newspapers. The TV station, which had the great highest rating of any, was something called RCTV, a private station, which Chavez failed last May. Uh, decided not to renew the license for that. They have to have a government license. Um, and this was a case that was brought before all the Inter-American Human Rights Commission and other commissions. It was clear that, you know, that this was, this was the most critical programming that was there, and the ratings were very high. And the government was not, you know, comfortable because this was, for, for those channels where people don't watch, they're not terribly bothered by them. So they let them continue. So when, I think the evidence is when there's, you know, you could see a lot, but when they feel that there's a real threat, um, then they use the mechanisms to, to, to clamp down. And RCTV, I think, was a very, very important case because it was the first time that the students of Venezuela uh, were mobilized and organized against the government. Um, and they weren't the traditional politicians that basically were saying, we want to get rid of Chavez which has always been what the opposition says. These students were saying, you know, this is not democratic. You know, we should have, uh, we should be able to watch these shows. There's news, but there's also the telenovelas, there's entertainment, you know, why is the government restricting what we could see if these are so popular? And that was really the beginning and a very important thing, which also played a strong role in the defeat of the referendum. The students were reactivated, went back to the streets and, and said, you know, we don't want a closing of this TV station. We don't want this president for life proposal of Chavez. And they've played a very important, refreshing role. So it's not like Cuba, but you know, there is some space there. But, it's, but, but when they feel that it sort of gets to a little bit too threatening, then they, then they clamp down. On the anti-Americanism, yes, the anti-Americanism has always existed uh, in Latin America. There's no, there's no question about that. 
Um, but things began to change. Um, you know, it depends what your point of reference is. My point of reference is, you know, sort of the end of the Cold War in the 1990s, starting with George Herbert Walker Bush and then Bill Clinton administration. Uh, all of the polls and all of the evidence we have is that there began to be a much greater trust uh, in the U.S. Um, that this was a new start, things had opened up, there was really opportunities for change, greater cooperation. Uh, the report that my organization issued in 1993 was called Community and Convergence of the Americas. Now, t today we did something like that, it would be the laughing stock uh, in Washington. Um, there was a kind of a mood, uh, and I think George Bush Sr., uh, to me, uh, was the model administration. In some ways, if the next president of the United States asked me, whoever it is, uh, what they should do in Latin America uh, and what they should look for as a model, I would go back to the Bush father administration. I think they did very, very good things on democracy, on debt, on multilateral ways to deal with the drug issue. Um, the peace process in Central America, the wars in Central America are still going on. Um, this was actually, and if you talk to Latin Americans as I do and you say which U.S. administration did you feel like there was most sort of mutual respect, many of them, if they're old enough, uh, will point to the, the first Bush administration. So now does that mean that, you know, everybody loved the United States? No. Uh, there's always, you know, uh, the, the differences in power is uh, U.S. has this big differential that's always going to have some resentment towards the United States. There's always these mixed feelings. Uh, but, you know, at some moments it's better than other moments. And um, today it's gotten to a point where it's just very hard to conduct anything uh, in any kind of cooperative regional setting. Back in the 90s, there were things that happened that I think are important. Maybe not what a lot of people would have liked, but much better than today. So I guess my point is that there are a lot of common interests that I think there are ways to, to cooperate a little bit better and, and, and lift those numbers up a little bit of, of, of anti-Americanism so there's less of it, but it's not going to disappear. And I think it's going to be there. It's in the nature of the, the structure of the relationship and its history and culture and a lot, there's a lot of baggage uh, that goes back. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be unrealistic, but I just think I think we can do a lot better. Um, and I also I also think uh, well, let me just one more point on 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 anti-Americanism. <clears throat> I think the Iraq War, which clearly has been unpopular, uh, touched a special nerve in Latin America because it was a unilateral military action, um, which in Central America and the Caribbean they know a lot about uh, historically. Um, and so it was really uh, something which you saw in Latin America, if they do it in Iraq, well, they could do it here because they they've done it here anyway. This is closer, this is easier, it's closer. Uh, there was a lot of that. So it, it really uh, touched a real nerve, I think, in, the, in this hemisphere. Um, and the final question was on the oil. Um, you know, somebody asked me the other day, what's the magic number, you know? To fifty dollars a barrel or sixty dollars a barrel, and some people say it's forty, and some people say it's sixty. It's very hard to know. I mean, clearly the production in Venezuela has gone down uh, again because of this governance problem, this management and governance problem I alluded to. Uh, Venezuela is still doing well because the prices is is, is is so high. Uh, I think you know if it goes down, uh, you know the problems get worse and they accelerate. Uh, how far does it have to go? 
Well, you know, I mean, you ask a lot of experts and they all disagree on what that magic number is. Uh, I gave my magic number, I think it was 50, but some people had it higher, some people had it lower. Uh, it's very, very hard to, to estimate that. Uh, in Latin America, by the way, some, you know, there are oil producers like Venezuela and Ecuador and natural, uh, Bolivia's natural gas, but there are others that, were, that would benefit, that are that import, you know, Mexico is an oil producer, Canada, but there are a lot that, that don't, that have energy problems and they would, they would benefit from obviously having lower prices. So, uh, like the effect of China, China helps a lot of countries because it's buying up copper and it's buying up other it's devouring all these raw materials, but it's also competing. It's still drawing away investment from places like Mexico and Central America. So there's always different places have different impacts, and on oil it's the same way. It would be very, very bad for Venezuela. It would hurt Mexico, it would hurt Ecuador and others. But for others that don't have Chile, doesn't have that, it would, it would, it would, it would, it would be helpful. So it really has a differential effect. Thank you for this marvelous course in South American Politics 101. We're now, uh, thank you so much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.